Well, what a day. If you aren't aware, Punxsutawney Phil has predicted an early spring. Who's excited about that? Uh, who wants more winter? All right, a bunch of skiers in the house. I want more winter. You know, Punxsutawney Phil in only 125 years has predicted an early spring 20 times. Apparently, everybody's wondering why I care so much about any of I grew up right outside of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, so it was always a big deal in my world. And that's what's happening today. It is also Super Bowl Sunday. Any, uh, anybody excited about the Chiefs tonight? Any Chiefs uh, fans here? Okay, some Chiefs people. Who's, who's going for the 49ers? Uh, boo, oh, actual booze there for the 49ers. Who is just in it for J-Lo? Who's in it just J-Lo in the halftime? Anybody? All right, a couple people. That's pretty much my main interest this year. So we'll see how that goes for us. And we are now kicking off the Jonah series. And as I said last week, I am particularly stoked about this series. I've been referencing Jonah for a life of ministry. I've never gone through the book, and I just realized, what have I been doing? It is time to dig down deep into this incredible book that is called Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn into them with me. We're going to find Jonah, and he's going to be right in between Obadiah and Micah, and that's right in between Obi-Wan and Luke, and I only made up, somebody caught that, I only made up one of those names, interestingly enough, only one of those doesn't appear in the Bible. So here's the deal, when we, it is kind of hard to maybe find Jonah, we'll have it on the screens here for you, and if it's on your phone, that's cheating, you just scroll down, I mean, how easy is that? Um, but Jonah is in this uh, packaged part of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. These are the guys that never made the big leagues like a, an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. No, no. It, it's just that their books are smaller. They kind of had, most of them just had sort of one main point. They made it quickly. They made it succinctly. And we have these books packaged right at the end of your new uh, Old Testament. And they often just get overlooked. And frankly, again, in my life, I've perhaps overlooked them often. I, I will say this now, in preparing for this series and in cross-referencing how the ministries of uh, Jonah and many of the minor prophets have some overlap, um, I've gotten particularly excited about the minor prophets. And so this summer or the fall, I'm not sure when, when I'm going to drop it in, I'm going to be doing a series called Major in the Minors. And I'm way too excited about the title of that series. I just, you know, I just, I'm like, ooh, great, great title. I got to do a whole series now. But we're going to look at the minor prophets, and I'm going to attempt to kind of just preach the message of most of the minor prophets, um, so in a kind of series of, of messages. So again, that's how excited I am about Jonah. Well, as we turn to Jonah now, we are going to be uh, reading just through the entire um, first chapter here. So it's a big chunk. Uh, pay attention. I don't think you'll have trouble paying attention. It's an incredible story, of course, that has captivated um, minds and imaginations. Uh, uh, people of faith, people outside of the faith um, agree that this is an amazing, masterfully woven together story. And we believe it's more than just a story, but in here is a revelation that can bring life to us. So here it is, Punker down, pay attention. We're going to read the whole first chapter so you can just sort of soak it all in here this morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it 
because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, Jonah as we're going to find out over the next several weeks, it can take a movement of really four parts. And I read this, and it's really helped me to just wrap my head around what we're going to be getting into. Jonah runs from God, and that's what we're going to get into today. And then we're going to see Jonah immediately run to God. And then we're going to see Jonah walk with God. But then we're going to see a twist at the end where he's going to walk away from God again. And then we're going to be left hanging with some things to process and some decisions to be made for our own lives. But Jonah starts out exactly like every other prophet for exactly one verse. <laughs> he starts out exactly like every other prophet for exactly one verse, and from that point forward, it will turn. And as he turns, we're going to find that his message is different, his calling is different, the people to whom he's supposed to go is different, his response is different, there's different kind of miracles, different kinds of... Jo Jonah stands unique amongst all of the prophets, really. And, and as we walk with him through these actions, as we've already begun to do, I mean, there are times where we're going to be shocked 
we should be shocked. We should be surprised. We should be horrified, in fact, at his obstinance, at his hard heart, at his bigotry, at his racism, at his hatred, in fact, at his loathing of other people that God has made. And, and we will want to stand in judgment over him. But it is at that precise point, as we cast our own lot against Jonah, that maybe we'll pause just long enough to reflect on our lives and then begin to see the Jonah in us. And we'll begin to see our hard hearts and the times when we've turned away and times when we've hold bigotry or prejudice or hatred, hatred, or just outright loathing of other people whom God loves and wants His mercy and grace to be extended towards, or at least I will speak for myself on this behalf. Let, let, let me say this, yes, I know and I hold fast to and I stand in the promises of who God says I am in Christ Jesus. I am made in the image of God. I am a child of God. I have been bought with a price. I have been redeemed. I have been called. I have been commissioned. I have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me. Christ lived for me. Christ died for me. Christ rose for me. Christ is coming again for me. I'm an ambassador of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that one? Yeah! Oh, but I've looked inside, and I've seen a darkness. I've seen greed. I've seen pride. I've seen envy. I've seen lust. I've seen Jonah. I've seen Jonah in me. And... I don't want to hang on this too long, so we'll get to some good stuff right now, now. But, but we will be invited to learn the lessons of Jonah and how they can be played out in our own lives. In the end, we're going to discover this, that God loves great cities and groups of peoples and multitudes and far-off lands because he wants all of creation and people of every tribe and nation and tongue to come and worship him and he is willing then to go with the one who rebels to draw the nations to him. And that powerful juxtaposition, I pray and I hope that we will see have a powerful outworking in our lives. The God who goes after the great cities is also the God who cares enough for the one lost sheep. So, let's turn our attention then towards Jonah and walk through some of what is happening in his life. We've just read through the whole, the whole section there, and what we're going to find then is that Jonah takes a turn almost immediately after the first verse. All of the other prophets get a call like this, go to my people, go to Israel, go to Judah, go to one of the tribes, go to my people and preach repentance to them. Show them how they have turned from me, how they've gone astray, how they've chased after false gods or uh, other things of this world, and, and, and draw them back to me. And that message is heard to greater or lesser degrees and responded to by many or by some, and repentance happens. And, and when that does, Peace comes upon the land for another season, sometimes short again, sometimes long. But this is how the message goes out to most of the prophets. But we see from the very onset, after verse 1, 
the message becomes very different. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. We think, all right, another prophet story. But then immediately we see surprise number one. Go to, not Israel, not Judah, not one of the tribes. Go to Nineveh. Go to another nation. Go to another people. What we see is this is the beginning of one of the outworkings of the Great Commission already being fulfilled. This has always, of course, been the plan of God. Whenever God created us, He created us for Him and for all peoples to know and be known and walk with Him. And we strayed from that. Whenever He called Abram, He said, you will become a blessing to all peoples and through you a blessing to all the world. And, and so we've been living into this promise to all the nations. And, and here we see this great outworking then, first and foremost, of the Great Commission, that this message isn't just for one people, one place, one group. It is for all the nations. So we're already surprised when we see this. Surprise number two is a bit more surprising. Go to Nineveh, and now if we begin to do our history and reflect on this, Nineveh is, at this time, the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is, well, Assyria is unique. Let's talk about Assyria for a minute. Now, when Jonah gets the call to go to Assyria, you know, this, 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 you know, this isn't like getting the call to go to the peaceful, loving neighbors to the north. You know, and I got the call in 2006, you know, go to the godless, heathen nation of Canada, those warmongering, hate-filled, you know, northerners. No, no, no. I mean, I got the call to go to Canada. You know, yeah, that, 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 that's a pretty easy call to go to that nation up north, and it was a great, you know, uh, season in, in our lives. When, when Jonah gets this call to go to the Assyrians, these really are the evil, hate-filled, warmongering, aggressive nation. Now, Many preachers at this point would talk about how vile, how awful, how, how, how you know, just, just, just how bad the Assyrians are. Um, but I don't want to be too graphic to describe who the Assyrians are. But I know you want me to be graphic about how the Assyrians are. So we're just going to do this. I have two slides prepared. Do we have those ones ready? Yes? All right. So here's the first slide here. This is from King um, Shalmaneser II, and we have all these stone tablets that he made of his exploits and his conquests. And if you look closely in that, you'll notice that they are shaking a man's hand, and the other hand is cut off, and so have both of his feet. Because this was their practice of what they would do to their victims to lop off their feet, to lop off a hand, and to shake the last hand, and to mockingly leave them, dragging themselves to try and help themselves, to try and get help, to try and create a tourniquet or something to save their own lives. Here's the next slide here. This is a picture of what we would call a rack situation, where they'd take their victims, their nations that they'd conquested, they would stretch them out, and if that wouldn't kill them, they would often flay their skin, and if they survived from that, they would decapitate them, put their head on a pike, and cause and force their family members who they were enslaving to carry the head of their loved one back to their nation. I probably don't have to get any more graphic than that now, do I? <laughs> so when Jonah gets the call to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, to this group of people, we can have a little bit of sympathy to his shock and to his horror, even to his confusion. 
about why God might be wanting to bring redemption, the opportunity for salvation, the opportunity to repent and to not receive the punishment that it would seem that they so deserve. What is even more shocking, though, for us now is that isn't, this isn't actually the first time we encounter Jonah and his interaction or prophecies against or for the nation of Assyria. So very quickly, we're going to do just a little bit more digging, and we are going to turn briefly to 2 Kings chapter 14. Follow along with this again on screen or in your own Bible there, and lean in towards the end where this is going, because you're about to hear a whole bunch of names and things happening, and then it'll come together at the end. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. I know we all kind of gloss over that, but the point here is these are real events, chronicled history for us of real people, and this is what is unfolding. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored, here's what's happening. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Let me just give you the interpretation. Jonah is the pro-Israel prophet. Jonah is the build-the-wall prophet. Jonah is the batten down the hatches and build the walls and buckle down and prepare for battle, and we will stand firm, and we will not let the wicked nation of Assyria penetrate our borders, take us as slaves, or destroy our nation. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to address very specifically some of what this means for Jonah and for us called as the people of God to spread a message of mercy, of grace, of love, and the opportunity for repentance. But for now, let it stand like this. God says go, <laughs> but Jonah says no. God says go, but Jonah says no. And the writer here, which we believe to be Jonah, reflecting on his life, sort of writing in the third person, will show us just how far his no to go will go. Did that make sense? He will show us just how far his no to go will go. God says go to Nineveh. Get up and go to Nineveh. So he gets up, and he goes, but he does not go from his vantage point. He does not go northeast to head toward Nineveh, but he begins to head southwest to go to Tarshish. He does not head over land. He heads for the harbor and heads out to sea. He does not make a trip of a few hundred miles, but sets off on a journey that would have been a few thousand miles. He is not going specifically to a named city and to a people group. He is going to this place called Tarshish, which is just basically the end of the known world and the beginning of the known. This is how far Jonah goes to say no to God's go. He is going to run in the complete opposite direction to 
And this is where the key phrasing is to flee, his attempt to flee from the face of the Lord. He wants nothing to do with this calling. He wants nothing to do with this mission to the point where he says, I want nothing to do with this God any longer. And he heads off in the other direction. The old preachers used to put it this way, and us new preachers, we still do because you can't beat it. <laughs> they used to always say, you'll always find a ship when you're trying to flee from God. You're always going to find a ship when you're trying to flee from God. If you are trying to get away from God, if you're trying to run from his presence, if you're trying to go in the opposite direction, you will always find a ship. You will always find a vessel. You will always find a means. You will always find a method to be able to, to take your life far from God. When you want to get away from God, you just go to where the sailors are. When you want to get away from God, just find the sailors and follow. No, sorry, uh, George Sailor, if you didn't know that. So no, no, no. When you want to get away from God, you'll find a means to that end. You'll find a ship sailing in the other direction. You'll find a group of friends to surround yourself who want nothing to do with God. You'll find a reason or excuse or a rationale to go directly against God's calling on all of our lives or on your life specifically. When God says go and we say no, we can always find a ship to take us in another direction. We have been doing this fleeing since the garden. Jonah wants us to understand just how far he is trying to get from God, because when he wants to hide from the face of God, what we see here is that he's invoked the very language of the garden. When Adam and Eve, the first man and the woman, fell into sin and disobeyed the command of God, it says that they looked at themselves, they saw their nakedness, they were then ashamed of what they had done, of who they had become, and they sought to hide from, to flee from the face of God. And Jonah here is trying to hide from, flee from the very face of God. What Adam and Eve discovered, what Jonah is about to discover, however, is that sin, disobeying, disobeying God, running from him, always overpromises and underdelivers. Following sin in our lives will always overpromise and underdeliver. Going the way of the flesh, going the way of the world, and sorry, I just have to sound like the old preacher there, but it is so true. Going against God always overpromises and underdelivers because at some point we then bear and live into the consequences of actions of disobedience. When what we are being taught throughout the scriptures, throughout the life of Jonah, and into the life of Jesus, we will see that the best way to live for God is to surrender our lives to Him and then obey completely. One person put it this way, which I love, and it's always stung with me, the most hedonistic, the most hedonistic thing that you can do, which grabs your attention as a Christian, oh, are we supposed to even be hedonists? The most hedonistic, pleasure-filled thing you can do is to devote yourself fully to God and then obey Him completely. Devote yourself fully to God and then obey Him completely. And then you will live the most joy-filled, pleasure-filled, happiness-fulfilled life of faith. And we're going to see that unfold 
in the life of Jonah. But in order to draw this to a concluding point, because we're going to need to postpone a lot of the working of that out for the weeks to come, let me just give you a framework for understanding what's about to happen in Jonah's life, and I pray then, of course, in our lives. There's some bad news, there's some good news, and then there's the best news. We got bad news, we have good news, and then we're going to get into the best news. The bad news is this. Tim Keller put it this way. Sin always has a storm attached to it. Sin always has some kind of storm attached to it. Whether we reap that storm immediately or in the long haul, there's always a consequence attached to disobeying God. Liars generally get lied to. Cheaters generally get cheated on. Murders often end up themselves murdered. Sin always brings with it a storm into our lives. As we look at the life of Jonah, we can see the way that the storms of sin play themselves out. Sometimes we bring the storms on ourselves. Jonah is living into a storm that he is bringing on himself. And often in our lives, we bring storms by our own choices. There is one clear directive for us as the people of God, or in order to become a person of God and to follow Him, and that is when we recognize that our sin, that a choice that we have made, a direction we've set our lives on, when it has brought a storm, there is one immediate clear course of action. Repent. The other old preacher word, repent, to turn to change direction, to reorient your life away from God, back to God. When we recognize that we've brought a storm of sin into our lives, what we should do as quickly as we possibly can is turn back. <laughs> turn and head back towards God. Now, that doesn't mean that the storm will not bear itself out and bring consequences to our lives, but there is forgiveness and there is life in repenting and turning back towards God. Jonah is going to experience this to a certain degree, and then he'll turn from it again. But that's in weeks to come. The other thing is that happens is that sometimes we experience the storms of others' lives. Others create a storm of sin that crashes into us. This is, of course, the experience of these sailors. These sailors are just sitting around in Joppa. They're ready to go on their next trip. This guy, and, we're gonna, and, and I won't get into this, it would appear that Jonah perhaps paid all of his wealth, all of his savings, an enormous amount to charter this boat to go away from God, which is a whole other message on the extents that we will go, the price that we will pay to actually free, flee and turn from God. But, but these sailors just doing their job experience this storm because of the choices, the actions of another. And many of us have experienced that. Many of us have experienced being lied to, being cheated on, being hurt, being broken, being abused in any number of ways. Whenever we recognize a storm has come into our lives, that is when we don't need to repent, but we can just invite the healing, the restoration, forgiveness extended from ourselves to others because of storms brought upon us. Sometimes, of course, in a broken and fallen world, the third thing is storms just happen. 
literal storms happen that crash into shores and where people build homes those homes crash down and it's hard to make sense of it but sometimes just storms happen in a broken and fallen world and more and more in my life more and more i am able when i see when i witness and i experience and i'm part of the storms of life i can embrace the third response and that is to simply pray come lord jesus come <laughs> come lord jesus come i can just say this for myself at this point in my life i am done with my own agenda if I don't get to the end of this message because Jesus comes again, I am on board with that plan. I am so done with my life's agenda. I have fulfilled everything I possibly need to fulfill. If he wants to come and bring the kingdom and bring healing and wholeness and hope and redemption in the city of God sets ground right here, right now. All right, not right here, right now, but I'm praying it more heartily each and every day. When I see how the storms of a broken world crash into lives come lord jesus come and so we see these storms of life crashing in to jonah's life into the lives of these sailors and into our world that's the bad news the good news is the good news is that god is in the storm in this case in this place in this situation god is in the storm God is so committed to this mission to go and reach the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh to preach repentance to them, and yet is so powerfully committed to Jonah. And when we think about this, when we say no to God, so vehemently as Jonah has done, remember, this isn't just a no, this is a fleeing, running the other direction. I mean, we could not be headed more in the opposite direction. We would think that God would say, I will just call and use another man or woman for my means. No, but he goes after Jonah because that's our God. He goes after the lost sheep. Amen. He goes after the prodigal running down the path to embrace them and welcome them back into the household of God. I love the way the old poem puts it, and I encourage you to read The Hound of Heaven, but it takes about an hour if you read poems at my pace. I love the imagery of the hound of heaven who is hot on our heels and will not let us go, but will chase us down, even if sometimes it feels like kicking and screaming out of his great love for us. He will want to bring us back into his presence. God is not going to let Jonah get away that easily. Oh, you think you can go in the other direction? You think you can sell everything you have? You think you can flee from my presence? Oh, no, Jonah. I'm not going to let you get away that easy. And so he sends this storm into Jonah's life as the great mercy. Romans 8, 28 tells us that all things, all things, even though we don't always see them and understand them or can always make sense of them, but all things will work together for the good of our Lord who is calling us according to his purpose and his plan at work in our lives. God is using this storm in Jonah's life. And maybe some of us, Yes, some of us, yes, maybe all of us to some degree or another, we're experiencing storms in our lives. We've made some choices that we know we're reaping a storm from it. We are in a circle of relationships with people that have made choices that a storm has welled up to us. And, and we are dealing with that now, or we're just dealing with a storm of, of a cancer, of, of a brokenness, of a pain that this world brings. But my friends, God can meet you in that storm 
and use this for his good to make and shape and mold and to direct your life into the man and the woman on the mission he's calling you to be. That's the good news, right? That is good news. But there's even better news. The better news, the best news, the greatest news that we begin to turn to in the story is that we have a God who entered the storm for us. All of this points to, reflects on, is building up towards when God would enter into the storm of our lives, the storm of our relationships, the storms of our world. He would enter into the storm to save and redeem us. Over the next few weeks, we will be unpacking more and more how Jesus particularly chose Jonah and used his story to help us make sense of his very life and his mission and his calling. We think about Jonah on this ship, gone down into the hull and has fallen into a deep sleep. This numbness of soul that he is experiencing, and yet we're going to find Jesus on a ship in a storm, in a deep slumber, because he knows the peace of God. And more than that, we will discover, as Jesus then pointed out, the very sign of Jonah would become the sign of his life. When Jesus saw us trapped in the storms of this world, in the storms of life, when Jesus saw the tempest of our souls and our lostness, our brokenness, the, the dismal estate, the depths to which we had sung, Jesus was not content to remain far off, but entered into the storm and offered up his own life. And as chapter one ends with Jonah three days in the belly of the fish, our Lord and Savior willingly went three days to the depths of Sheol, to the price for our sin, to take the death that we deserved, only to rise again and to offer us a new beginning and a new life in his resurrection. And that is the greatest news. And the news that we will be leaning into the next four weeks as we go deeper down, down, down with Jonah. But Jesus's ministry that brought the greatest news, the news of our life, our redemption, our resurrection in him, that began to unfold at a table set much like this. For on the very night that Jesus Christ would be betrayed, beaten, crucified, killed, and set into a grave where he would spend three days before his resurrection, on that night, Jesus pointed towards that good news when he gathered around his disciples and he took a loaf of bread and he broke it And he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took a cup and he lifted it up and said, this cup is now the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood, which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul reminded us that each and every time we take of this bread and drink of this cup, in this we are proclaiming the saving death of our risen Lord until he comes again. And we now live into that hope of his promised return and that until then he fulfills his promise that he is with us each and every day by the power of his Holy Ghost, but to be experienced and remembered and lived into by the taking of this bread and the sharing of this cup as the body of Christ. Let me give you a few instructions for how this will play itself out. My friends, my family, 
All are welcome to the table here at Connections who call on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and want to share together as the body of Christ. If for any reason you feel you can't or won't participate in the table, there is no judgment here. Just remain in your seat and reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the life that he promised can be given in and through professing faith and putting your trust in him and him alone. For those of us who want to come and partake at this table and share as the body of Christ, we'll have three stations, one in the end of each uh, aisle right here, and we'll invite you to come forward to take the bread and to take the cup and then to return to your seat. And then once all have been served, we will together take and eat and take and drink as one in the body of Christ. If you want a gluten-free option, we will have that here on the table for you to take from. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you, my family in Christ, to come to take, to eat and drink and remember his sacrifice for you. I invite those who are able to come and to take the bread and then to take the cup to return to your seat and we will then eat and drink together as the body of Christ. If mobility is an issue, after those who have come forward have been served, we can bring the communion elements to you at your seat. These are, again, the gifts of God for the people of God and I invite all of you to come and to take and to eat. 